My name is Ken, and I'm the location pastor uh, here at West Bridgewater. I was like, this is sounding weird. Sounds like I'm in a tunnel. Hello, 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 hello. Uh, glad that you're here. Uh, so we are wrapping up our series called Asking for a Friend. And these are questions that you pose to the pastor saying, hey, we'd like some answers to these difficult questions. And you didn't go easy on us. Uh, my very first Sunday here, uh, we talked about gender and identity. It was like, Thank you so much for that. And then sexuality, uh, last week was about origin of man, evolution, and creation. And today, uh, I'm not going to tell you the title. I want you to guess the title. But I'm going to read some of the questions that you posed. And I want you to think of the like overarching uh, question or, or subject that we'd be talking about today. Eventually, I'll tell you. But here's some of the questions. Where on a scale between passive and aggressive should Christians fall? Ooh. Are we like Jesus when we fight against immorality in our culture? Do we stay meek and quiet uh, in our culture that's running in, in an unbiblical uh, way? How do we fight for biblical truth in a culture that doesn't have ethics? Our culture wants to cancel Christians and cancel God. Should we be more outspoken? What do you think we're talking about today? It's about culture. It's about, as Christians, what is our response to culture? Because I don't know about you, but I feel that tension. Here's a great quote. Uh, this person is probably quoted more than anybody else. His name's Anonymous. <laughs> and it's, this is the quote. All evil needs to, do, to succeed is for good people to do nothing. I feel that. Like, I see our culture, I see our country, and do I just stand by and not do anything? Like, what is my response? What is a biblical response? What should I be doing? Because I don't want to do nothing, because I think if I do nothing, then I'm, I'm part of the problem. I'm definitely not part of the solution. But I also don't want to do the wrong thing, because doing the wrong thing can even make the, the problem worse. So I want to ask a question, and I don't want you to answer out loud. I want you to answer in your mind. What do you think is most broken in our culture? Think about that for a second. What is the most broken part of our culture? Is it our morality? And some of the things that we talked about in this series, are the, is that the most broken part of our culture? Is it environmental? Like, yeah, I, I, I get that. Is it political? Is it academics? Is it some type of social justice that we're, that we're just missing the mark on? Is it lack of, of equality in our culture? Like, what is it? And as you look at the things that I just mentioned, there are people in our culture who are the champion for those things, whether it's environment, politics, uh, social or racial um, uh, equality. There are people who champion that on social media and other places. So the question is, if these are what's most broken, what fixes those things? So if it really is... Uh, culture, then, then what we need, or morality in our culture, we need more laws. Like, we need to say that you, that's wrong, and this is the law that says don't do that anymore. If it really is environment, then we need new technologies that help us to have less environmental uh, impact in, in, our, in our environment. If it really is lack of equality, then we just need new opportunities. If it's politics, depending on which aisle you fall on, either we need new leadership or we just need to follow the leadership that we have. 
So what I'm saying is there are solutions to what people think as most broken. I think these questions that we asked come from a valid concern that I see where the world is. I don't like that. I think we all agree that we're not in a good spot in our culture. Would you agree? I think financially, our culture is corrupt. Morally, I think we're bankrupt. Judicially, I think we're disappointing. Educationally, I think we're underperforming. I think spiritually, we're lacking. I think emotionally, we're broken. And mentally, we're exhausted. And politically, we're polarizing. Does that not describe how we live? It's true. And that's exhausting. So we don't trust people. We don't trust media. We, we, we don't trust the courts. We don't trust our educators. We don't trust uh, authorities. Don't know if we can trust the pulpit, the pastors, or our neighbors. And it's a difficult time to live. But what if these questions betray really what we as followers of Jesus are called to live? So I'm just going to be honest with you. Not that I lie, but I'm going to be honest. Today's teaching really is for those who follow Jesus. So if you came today and you're like, I don't even know what I believe about God, I want you to know you still came to a great time because we're going to talk about what does it look like for those who say they do follow God to live in a culture that maybe doesn't even acknowledge there is a God. So we're going to pull back the curtains, going to show you the good, bad, and the ugly because that's just who we are. So is it possible that the questions that we posed are distracting us as followers of Jesus on what is most important. Because those questions have a theme to it, and that theme is us versus them. And at some point, should we drop our signs of peace and put up our hands to fight? Should we? Is there a point in time where we like, this thing is so far out of control, we've got to start taking back ground. And to do that, we've got to start really being aggressive. I think some Christians have already taken that stance and they're doing that. Others are like, ah, oh, we're not there yet. So where do we land? Is that the tension that you feel? It's the tension that I feel as your pastor. And so I want us to approach this as like, what does the Bible say? How do we live biblically in a culture that doesn't accept the word of God as their authority? I think we start with the very first verse that we, that we posed in this series, which is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We don't fight against flesh and blood. So I'm just going to give you the spoiler alert. We are not against people. I don't care what they believe. I don't care how they vote. I don't care about any of those things. We, as a follower of Jesus, I am not against people. That's not who we're fighting. The Bible says we fight against uh, evil. We fight against the authorities in the unseen world, against wickedness. We're fighting against Satan and his demons and the ideology that he presents. The way of Jesus is not fighting people. So if we're fighting people, we're doing it wrong. So how do we live in a culture that is antagonistic against followers of Jesus or anyone who doesn't just believe. Because I think there are people like, you're not a Christian, but you don't believe how I believe, so I'm still against you, and I still want to counsel you, and I want nothing to do with you. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that you're a Christian. It's just, if you have people who don't agree with you, how do you live in a world like that? Jesus knew that in his day, that the most broken part of his culture wasn't politics, it wasn't, wasn't their ethics, 
And Jesus lived in a time much like today. The only thing different really is that they were under a dictatorship, Rome, where we have a democracy, okay? But morally, ethically, and even spiritually, they were just as divided as we were. So it wasn't like Jesus lived in this utopia period where it just was all easy for him. He lived in in days similar to ours. But yet he focused on not politics, not morality, not even political. He focused on people's hearts. And he served them and he loved them. And he elevated the, the truth of God's word over the letter of the law and legalism. John Piper puts it this way. Jesus emphasized focusing on spiritual transformation rather than political power. And there were people that wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. There, were, there was a guy in part of his 12, uh, Judas, um, I'm sorry, Simon the Zealot, the Zealot. He was a reformist. He wanted Jesus to come in and overthrow Rome. He was the William, William Wallace. Freedom! But then he had Matthew, the tax collector who worked for Rome. Could you imagine sitting at the table between these two people? That would be like the very far right today and the very far left today sitting at your table. I, love, I would love to have dinner with those people. I bet Jesus is going, shut up, shut up. I bet he was always going, come on. But that's what John Piper said. He goes, Jesus wasn't here, though, to start a political movement. He resisted efforts to make him the earthly king and have this political revolution, stating that his kingdom wasn't of this world. His disciples existed or expected him to overthrow Rome, and he wasn't going to do it. As a matter of fact, one of his closest friends, Peter, when Jesus says, I need to die, he says, I will not let that happen. Why? Is it because he loved Jesus? Yes, But also, there was another motivation. He wanted Jesus to rule. And not only did he want Jesus to rule, but he wanted to rule with him. And what did Jesus say to his good friend that said, I'm not going to let that happen? Remember what he said to him? Get behind me, Satan. He says, your agenda is not my agenda. Your agenda actually comes from Satan. And I just wonder today, If Jesus was here with how we as followers of Jesus live our lives politically, socially, and morally, he would say, you are building the wrong kingdom. Get behind me. Get behind me. How heartbreaking that would be that we are more passionate about other kingdoms than we are about his kingdom. God's kingdom is not threatened by our culture. It's not. We're trying to win our culture. We're trying to make it more moral. Jesus, Jesus didn't try to make his culture more, more moral. Jesus spoke truth, but his truth was always packaged in grace and love. So how do we live that kind of life? That's a better question. How do we live that kind of life? And that's what we're going to answer today. So Jesus was living in a culture a lot like ours today, that wasn't, that wasn't godly. Like politically, morally, ethically, they were very similar to us. And people did not like Jesus. And so they were constantly trying to trip him up. 
Jesus was in constant Twitter wars with people. Of course, they did it face-to-face. They didn't do it over text or anything like that. People were always trying to trip Jesus up because if they could get him to say something against Rome, then all they had to do is go to the empire and go, look, you need to do something with this dude. He's not for you. Or compromise biblical truth, and they could go to the religious leaders and go, hey, he's a compromiser. So however Jesus answered their trick questions, they were trying to trap him. And so we find a story where this has exactly happened to Jesus. And so we're in Luke chapter 10, where this guy is a religious leader, and he's trying to trip Jesus up. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse number 25. It says, one day, an expert of the religious law stood up to test Jesus. So this is, this is his motivation. And he asked him a question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'm thinking, okay, you're a religious leader. Why would you ask this question? You, you know the answer to this. So there, obviously there's something behind it because he's trying to trick Jesus. Again, he's trying to get Jesus to say something that he can either go to Rome or he can go to the religious leaders and get Jesus taken out of the scene. Jesus doesn't answer his question, but he asks him a question in the next verse. He says, so what does the law of Moses say? He actually asks two questions. And how do you interpret it? Two different things. What does the Bible say, and what do you think it means? Essentially, that's what he said, because not everyone agreed on what the Bible said. And I think today, it's the same way. People will read a verse and go, oh, it says this. It's like, ah, actually, I think it says this. So he's saying, what does the Bible say, and how do you interpret it? And the guy's like, oh, okay. I'm going to give the answer. So, and he does. Verse number 27. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is like, right on, dude. Now go do that. What the guy did is he summarized all 600 laws in the Torah. He summed them all up because Jesus was asked, what are the greatest of the commandments? He goes, let me give you two. Love God and love your neighbor. All the law can be summed up in that. So he actually gives the summary of hundreds of, of, of commands. And so Jesus says, you've spoken right, now go do it. Jesus didn't cancel him. Jesus didn't debate him. He didn't argue him. He, did, he didn't unfollow him. He simply said, this is what you're saying is what you need to do to have a relationship with me. Now go do it. You would think, end of the story, right? But the guy felt convicted by that. Jesus, Jesus is, is pulling back his heart. He's getting him to see his own brokenness, his own hypocrisy. Maybe somebody in the crowd, and I'm just speculating, maybe somebody in the crowd goes, I know what you said, but I'm calling BS. Like, you don't live that way. I don't feel loved by you. You don't treat me like a neighbor. And how can you say you love God? Because I don't feel like you love me. So the Bible says that he wanted to justify himself, verse 29. So the man wanted to justify his actions. So what he said you should do and what he actually did were two different things. It does sound familiar today. So he asked Jesus a very complicated question. Who's my neighbor? Who, who's, the, who's the type of person that I'm supposed to love? Now, in their culture, it wasn't because he didn't know who his neighbor was. 
they had a very strict code of who your neighbor was. Much like today, our neighbor are the people that we love and who are like us. So if you're a Republican, it's a Republican. If you're a Democrat, it's a Democrat. If you're progressive, progressive, conservative, conservative. So in their culture, people who were on the same level socially, economically, education-wise, those were my neighbors. Now, we always would love to be a part of the group up here, right? People who are more influential, wealthier, more educated, but we never want to be associated with the people down here. That was their culture. So Jesus is asking, so do you agree with what we're saying, who our neighbor is? Jesus, again, doesn't answer his question. I love this. Jesus is like, let me tell you, let me tell you a story. And in this story, what he's wanting this man to do is identify himself in the story. So this is what I want you to do. As we read the story, I want you to identify which person would best describe you in your relationship with people. So he says, let me tell you a story. Verse 30. Very important, the very first couple words. A Jewish man. So the, the person that Jesus is talking to is Jewish. He's a religious leader. He says, there's a Jewish man that was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, so they humiliated him. He's lying there naked. They beat him up, and they left him half dead, laying on the side of the road. Here comes the first person by. By chance, a priest, another religious leader, somebody up here, like well-educated, well-connected, well-respected. That's, that's the priest. But when he saw the man lying in the ditch, he crossed by the other side. The next person that comes by is a temple assistant. He walked over and looked at the man, but he passed by on the other side. So I imagine as Jesus is, is telling the story, the guy goes, I get it. The guy in the road is a lower class Jew. Now they're all Jewish, but he's a lower class Jew. He's not on the same level and he's definitely not high, high enchilant, the, uh, the upper class. So it doesn't bother him that those that are up here are walking by. They would say, yes, that's exactly what should happen. I don't, I don't know. Okay, keep going because you're not, you're not convincing me about answering my questions. Who is the hero of the story? Because I want to identify with the hero because I feel like I'm the hero. Okay, here comes the hero. Verse 33. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan smoothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him up. He put him on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, the man said, here, I'll pay his bill. Here's my credit card. If he orders room service, put it on my tab. That's the new version. Now he said, here, here's two coins. If it's more, I'll pay you the next time I hear. So this man is asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't answer the question, but he changes the question. And the question that Jesus is wanting this guy to see is, who was a neighbor to this man? Do you see the difference? He says, so who was it? Jesus changes the question to, no, not, not who should you be neighbors to, but what type of person are you? 
Are you a neighbor? So the Samaritan comes along, and he practically lives out what it means to be a neighbor. He shows compassion. He shows love. He shows concern. And here's the thing about the Samaritan, which was so difficult for this Jewish man to understand, is they hated Samaritans for two reasons. One was racial. They weren't Jewish. They were partly Jew. And they would rather deal with people who were completely not Jewish at all, pagan, than deal with somebody who was partly Jew. When Jesus met the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. And she's like, why are you even talking to me? I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman. Like she had those two things that, that the Jews wouldn't even talk to. So, so they saw her, they saw this, uh, the Samaritan as a half Jew. Secondly, was their religious beliefs. They believed in the same God, but they worshiped him differently. They didn't go to Jerusalem because they weren't allowed. They went to their own temple. And for the Jewish people, they're like, you're wrong. You worship God in the wrong way. You're canceled. You're worse than an unbeliever. You're worse than like the dog in the street. That's how they would treat a Samaritan. And Jesus makes him the hero of the story. So this guy has a conundrum. Like, I want to be the hero of the story, but you pick the person that I hate to be the hero of the story. Because Jesus wanted him to know that he wasn't the hero of the story. He was like the religious leader, the priest that walked by, and the temple assistant. And so my question is, who are you in the story? So I love people who love me. You're just like the Jewish leader. This is who I love. And I would love to be a part of this class, but the Democrat or the, Repub the Republican or the person who believes that you can be binary or, or a person who says we ha should have borders or the person who says we shouldn't have borders. Let's just keep going, right? Who is that for you? That you would say, you don't believe like me. I'm not going to help you. I think for a lot of people who say they follow Jesus, they treat people who don't look like them like the person in the ditch. And Jesus would say, you're missing the point. The whole point of the story was for this person to see that I'm not like Jesus at all. And I think as followers of Jesus, this is a moment in time where we need to evaluate what kingdom are we building? Is that a political kingdom? Like you're trying to get people to believe and vote like you? Are you trying to moralize people so that they'll be better people? Jesus didn't try to change people's political opinion. He didn't tell the zealot, no, you'd be more conservative. He didn't tell the conservative, no, you need to be more liberal. He worked with both of them because he wasn't worried about their politics. He was worried about their heart. And I think we're more concerned about American politics or social issues than we are about people's destination, their eternity. And we're missing the mark. We're missing the mark of what is most important. We feel like that we need to usher in a more moral society. And if we did that, then culture would be better. We need to usher in a more educated society because if we just got people educated, that things would be better. 
If people are just more, more uh, uh, environment friendly or whatever it is, that culture would be better. We have all those people right now championing those causes. Our culture isn't any better. What Jesus focused on was people's hearts. Let me ask you this question. And this is a difficult question for you to answer. So I'm not going to ask you to answer it out loud. If everyone in America loved like you, would our country look different? Because you love everyone. It doesn't matter if they're of higher status or, in your mind, lower status. You love everyone. Notice I didn't say you agree with everyone. I don't think... I think you can love somebody and not agree with everything that they believe. My wife loves me, and there's a lot of things that I believe, like ice cream-wise. I told you I love moose tracks. She thinks that's the worst ice cream in the world. Okay, she can be wrong. That's fine. I'm not going to divorce her over that. You see what I'm saying? So you can love somebody and not agree with them socially, economically, politically, but do they feel loved by you? Or the way you love, everyone loves, everything stays the same because you only love those who love you, believe like you, and worship like you. If that's the case, we are the problem. It's not our culture. We are the problem. Our goal isn't to moralize our our society. Why are we so obsessed that people who don't follow Jesus don't act more Christian? Instead, we should be more upset that those who say they follow Jesus don't look anything like Jesus. That's the problem. It's not that the people who don't follow Jesus don't act more like Jesus. It's the people who say they are followers of Jesus that don't look like Jesus. That's the problem. The kingdom that we should be building is his kingdom. And that's the transformation of someone's heart. This is the whole point of the story. I don't know if the man walks away and goes, you know what? I hear you. I'm going to do that. Or if he walked away going, oh, man. I don't know how you'll walk away from today's teaching. Whether you're going, man, I feel like I got beat up today. I hope you don't feel that way. Or you walk away going, you know what? There's some things I need to change. I think my focus has been wrong. And I'm not saying you can't do anything or you shouldn't do anything, but are you doing the right thing to actually make uh, make a difference and impact our culture? If that's you and you want to make an impact in our culture, I'm going to give you four things to consider. Four things to consider. Here's the first one. Pray before you post. Pray before you post. Pray before you respond to a post. That's not number two, but that, that, that also goes under this first one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Don't use foul or abusive language. If you are a follower of Jesus, that should not characterize you. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be encouraging to those who hear them. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people who say that they follow Jesus. He's saying your words need to be helpful and encouraging to the person who's going to hear them. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you tweet, by the way you post, 
by the way you interact with people who don't share your faith. Remember, he has identified you as his own. You represent him and his interest, not yours. Verse 31, so get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, and all types of evil behavior. If we just live that verse, how different our culture would be. We would love people to Jesus. You ever watch the video on YouTube where two people are arguing? Well, actually, one person's arguing, and the other person's trying to be civil. You ever notice that? And you're like, man, I wish this person, because they believe like me, would just act civil. But they're like foaming at the mouth, and they're screaming, and they're yelling. The other person's just trying to have an intellectual and honest conversation. You're like, man, you're an idiot. That's all he's saying. He's saying, don't be an idiot in the way that you respond to people. Like, don't be this way. Why? Because you've been forgiven. We need to be tenderhearted, forgiving, just as Christ has forgiven you. So our communication to a world that doesn't believe like a follower of Jesus should be helpful and not harmful. So number two, be humble, not hateful. So pray before you post. Be humble, not hateful. I think sometimes we come across as we know better, followers of Jesus. We're superior. We have the high moral ground. And we make people feel like that they're in fear because we hold positions. This is what James says. James chapter 1. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God that he has planted in your hearts. For it, for what does? It, the word of God, has the power to save souls. Your argument on your political position does not have the power to change anybody. It does not. Your reason for the moral standards that you have doesn't have the power that the word of God has to impact someone's soul. So he says, let the word of God impact someone's soul. If you claim to be religious, now I want you to know this is God, not me saying this, so get mad at him. If you claim to be religious and you can't control your tongue, you can't control your post, can't control your tweets, he calls you a foolish person. You're fooling yourselves. And what you believe really doesn't matter. You're like the religious leader who asked Jesus the question, how do I get to heaven and who's my neighbor? Jesus says, what you believe doesn't matter because you don't live it. And the reason that I'm sharing this with you is because I don't want you to get to the end of your life and go, and Jesus be like, you're a lot like Peter. You're building the wrong kingdom. You turned a lot of people off when it comes to my kingdom. Welcome to heaven. But man, you sort of wasted a lot of good opportunities to have great conversations about people's spiritual condition, but you were more concerned about their political position or whatever the issue was. Be humble, not, not hateful. Number three, be helpful, not hurtful. Be helpful, not hurtful. James again says this, understand this, dear brothers and sisters. Again, he's talking to Christians. You must be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Your anger and your passion for other things does not produce righteousness of God. It doesn't. 
And fourthly, love everyone regardless of what they believe. Regardless of their political stance, their social position, their educational position, doesn't matter. I didn't say you have to agree with them, but you have to love them. They need to feel loved by you. James says again this, but the wisdom that's from above, first of all, it's pure. It's peace-loving. So God's wisdom is love and peace-loving. It's gentle all the time, and it's willing to yield to others. It's willing to say, I understand where you're coming from. I hear you. I'm, I have concerns with what you believe, but I, I'd love to have more conversations about this. Can we, in a um, loving and uh, way, talk about this? It is full of mercy and fruits of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It's a peacemaker. Could you imagine if we were defined as people who bring peace rather than division? We're peacemakers, and we plant seeds of peace. So I'm telling you that America is not going to hell, but people who live in America are. A country can't be Christian, but people can. And if you're more concerned about a political system than you are about the people, Jesus says you're missing the mark. You're missing the mark. Our call is to reach people with the gospel allow the gospel to transform their heart. And what God does with their behavior and their positions is up to God. It's my job to point people to Jesus, and I do that by loving them, not arguing with them. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you to consider everything that was said today in the scripture that was read, and I want you to identify who you are in that story. Not when it comes to your family, not when it comes to your friends, but when it comes to the Democrat or the Republican, the person who has papers and the person who doesn't have papers. The person who says that I believe that this type of lifestyle is okay. Is that the type of person that you would walk by and not share the love of God with? If that's the case, then you need to identify as the religious priest and temple assistant. And I really do need to think, I really do think and believe that you need to repent of that spirit because that spirit's not of God. But here's the great thing. God didn't, Jesus didn't cancel that dude. He asked him to change his heart. And that's the same opportunity that you have right now. You can change your heart towards those who don't believe like you or live like you. That is the only way that you're going to impact them in a godly way. Maybe you need to say, you know what? I need to write down that first point. I do need to pray before I post because a lot of my posts are just responses and they're angry and I really don't think through what I'm saying and I know that they can come off mean. Maybe you need to be more humble and helpful. Or you need to ask people, do you feel loved by me? Or do you feel judged by me? And how can I make you feel more loved by me?
they probably aren't going to say, well, agree with everything that I agree with. They know that that's not going to do, that's not, that's not going to happen. But how can we love each other even if we don't agree? As followers of Jesus, that is our mission. And I believe God has placed us in one of the most critical times in our country's history to be salt and light. I truly believe that a biblically-centered individual who's outwardly focused and radically generous and personally involved does make all the difference in the world. My question is, are those values your value? Who do you live for? What do you live for? I want to I close by praying the prayer that Paul prays for the church of Ephesus. He says, I pray that from your glorious and unlimited resources, God, we would receive power from our inner man to be strengthened through your spirit. That Christ would make his home in our hearts as we trust in him. That our roots would grow down deep into God's love and that we would become strong. That we may have the power to understand God's love, how wide it is, how long it is, how high it is, and how deep it is so that we could live it out. God, this is my prayer, that you would change us so that we can love our community. I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.